This is the Gathering Ottawa's Message Podcast, and this week we've got another message from our Acts of the Apostles series. For information about us, check out thegatheringottawa.com. To get connected, email info at thegatheringottawa.com. And just know that at The Gathering, we exist to connect people to the love of Jesus. So let's get right to it. I don't know if you've ever had to give a farewell speech before, whether maybe it was at work, you were changing jobs, you had the opportunity to stand up before everybody and give some parting words, or maybe for those of us who are a little bit more advanced in age, we've given the retirement speech, we've had the joy of being able to say goodbye once and for all and retire, walk away from our careers, maybe, um, maybe you moved and at a family gathering or a gathering of friends who had the opportunity to get up before moving and say goodbye to those that you loved. But it's what we see here in our text here this morning, the Apostle Paul giving a farewell speech. And farewell speeches can be a pretty emotional thing to do if you've ever had to do that before. Remember for, for me, years ago, we've lived here in Ottawa now for almost nine years. So about nine years ago, around this time, I stood up before the congregation that I was serving at in Southern Ontario and gave a farewell speech of sorts at a town hall meeting. And I couldn't tell you what I said. I don't remember the words that I said, but I remember the emotion of the moment as I looked out and I saw people that I knew and loved deeply, like I now know and love many of you uh, deeply. It was a really challenging moment to be able to say goodbye like that, though an honor to be able to do that. Farewell speeches are important because it shows us what's often most important to the person who's saying goodbye. And it's what we see here in Paul's farewell speech to the leaders of the church in Ephesus, a church that he planted many years ago, and a church that he knew he would not see again as he made his way to Jerusalem. We see him here giving a farewell speech to people that he loved. It's interesting to know that this speech that we see here in Acts 20 is the only speech or sermon in the entire book of Acts that is addressed to a Christian audience. Every other speech or sermon that you find in the book of Acts, whether, by, whether it's by Paul or by Peter or someone else, it's usually evangelistic in nature. It's a sermon or a speech to non-believers, to Jews, to Gentiles, inviting them to surrender their lives to Jesus. Or maybe it's before some sort of legal council and Paul or Peter are making some sort of defense before the Sanhedrin or the Roman authorities. That's what we see in the book of Acts. This is the only speech where we see Paul speaking to Christians. To believers, And so there's lots of really interesting insights, I think, and applications from this speech as we'll come to see. And so as we look at this speech from Paul, what we want to do is we want to look at it in three sections, because Paul seems to structure his speech in three different ways. First, by looking at the past. Second, by looking at the future. And then thirdly, by looking at the present. That seems to be the way he sort of structures his sermon. Past, future, and then present. Start by looking at the past in verse 18. 
when they arrived, they being the leaders or the elders of the church in Ephesus, Paul had sent for them to come to him who was at a nearby city because it was unsafe for him to return to the city of Ephesus. If you've been journeying with us, you might remember that at the end of Acts 19, there was a bit of a riot, uproar that was starting in that city, and Paul basically got the boot. He was told not to return or he would be imprisoned. And so he goes to a nearby village and sends for these leaders from this church to come to him instead of him going to them. So when they arrived, he, Paul, declared, you know that from the day I set foot in the province of Asia, that's Asia Minor, where Ephesus was located, now in modern-day Turkey, from that day until now, I have done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears. I have endured the trials that have come to me from the plots of the Jews. I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear, either publicly or in your homes. I have had one message for the Jews and Greeks alike, the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and of having faith in our Lord Jesus. Now, first glance here, as you look at some of what Paul says about the past, it, it almost sounds as though Paul is being a little bit boastful. <laughs> doesn't it? He's saying, I have endured. Look at what I've done. I never shrank back. I've had the one message. I, 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 and I. Again, it sounds almost a little bit boastful of him, like a humble brag of sorts. But you know what? He's actually, when you look at the words, he's not boasting. You know what he's doing? He's inviting these leaders, these elders of the church in Ephesus, to follow his example. Right? Like a father might say to his child, just do like I do. Paul says to his spiritual children here, follow my lead. Do like I do. Reminds me of words that Paul says elsewhere. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1 where he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Strong words. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Could you say that to someone, to your children, to people in your care? Just follow Jesus as I follow Jesus. It's the way Paul viewed his life. And it's not out of arrogance that he says these things, but out of confidence. Confidence not in himself, but in the Spirit of God at work in and through him as a leader and mentor. He's so confident in God's work in him. And that he's been faithful and true to God's call on his life. That he can say to others, again, not with arrogance, follow me as I follow Christ. Imagine having that kind of confidence. Again, not in yourself, but in Jesus, in you. I was thinking about Paul here in this speech. And his words, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And I was reminded of some of the mentors that I've had over the years, not just mentors, but people that I have looked up to in the faith, whether when I was a kid or as a young pastor, as I was getting started out. You know, what's interesting as I reflected on some of these people, my memory of them, I have a hard time, to be honest with you, remembering many of their words. Like there are in some cases, some pieces of advice that they gave, or if they were a pastor, I might remember the odd sermon that they preached, but you know what I remember most? about them. It was not their words, but their example, right? The, the things that were different about them, the way that they carried themselves around others. That's what I remember about them most. I remember 
the way that they so compassionately cared for people, hurting people, people who were struggling. I remember them listening. I remember the way that they would lean in and make eye contact and pay attention to the person that they were talking to. I remember the way that they would talk and the kinds of questions that they would ask of the person, drawing out some of their story. I remember their humility as they engaged with these people. I remember as well the way that they would deal with difficult circumstances, conflict, and hard conversations with others. I don't so much remember what they said, but how they said it. They said it again with such grace and humility. And I remember as well the way that they would deal with personal stress and anxiety in their life. Right? When they would come into a hard time or a stressful circumstance, they wouldn't be crushed by those circumstances, but they'd maybe pray their way through them, or they would talk in a hopeful, encouraging kind of way. I remember as well the way that they loved their spouses and their kids, putting their families first, seeing their families as their number one ministry in life. You know what I remember most about these people, though most of them being men? I remember the way they prayed. I remember the passion in their voices. And I remember the way that they'd speak about Jesus in passing conversations so naturally, like it just came out of them. They couldn't help but talk about the things of God. I remember the way that they loved Jesus. Again, I don't really remember their words so much as I do their example. Were these men perfect? No, I also remember them making mistakes and uh, having to deal with some of the messes that they made in their life. But I learned so much from them as I followed their example, listened not just to their words, but to their example. And here's a crazy thought for us here this morning. Did you know that you and I now, we're adults here, followers of Jesus, we get to be that example to the next generation here in this church. Did you know that? We just saw, I don't know how many kids left just a few moments ago for Kids Church, 20, 30 children. Did you know that many of those kids, they'll never tell you this because it's not something you tell someone. Did you, did you know though that those kids, many of them, they look up to many of you in this room. And when you take a minute to bend over and talk to them at their level and engage them and ask questions for them, maybe even pray for them, just include them in your story, in your life, in the life of our church, man, you have no clue. We have no clue how powerful that can be. And as our junior youth gather, right, grade sevens and eights, and the youth in our church as they attend youth group, as they hang out with older adults, volunteers who are investing in them, praying for them, encouraging them. Like if you grew up in the church and were in a youth group or something like that growing up, you know how powerful that example can be on them. We get to be that example to the next generation. Isn't that an incredible privilege that we get to be that example? Just like Paul said to the elders, the leaders in Ephesus, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. The next generation is looking at us and they're going to imitate us as we, we do not imitate Christ. It's a sobering thought as well, isn't it? Anyway, that's the first section of Paul's farewell speech as he focused in on the, the past. And he talked about his example, the example he set for these leaders, these church elders, 
from emphasis. Second section of his speech now focuses in on the future, as Paul talks, talks about now, his future sufferings, the sufferings that await him as he goes to Jerusalem. These uh, verses are found in verses 22 through 27. Look what he says. And now I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And somehow he just seems to know that God is leading him to Jerusalem. Would love to know how he knew that. I don't know what awaits me, except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. Again, I'd love to know if it was prophetic words or just the sense in his own spirit. I'd love to know how he knew that God was calling him to go to Jerusalem and that suffering awaited him. Paul says, I know as I go there, as the Spirit leads me, that I'm entering into some difficulty and some pain. I, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know it's going to be hard. That's what he said. I know that jail and suffering, including beatings and torture, lie ahead. I, I maybe even know that martyrdom might lie ahead. I don't know what's going to happen, Paul is saying, but I know it's going to be hard. And yet, in obedience to the Spirit's leading, amazingly, he goes anyway, right? He didn't have to. He could have avoided Jerusalem. But in obedience to the Spirit of God speaking to him, he goes to Jerusalem directly in to suffering and pain. Did you know that sometimes the Spirit of God can also lead us directly in? To suffering and pain. It's true. And that's not to say that he wants bad things to happen to us or that God intentionally arranges for bad things to happen in our lives and, you know, wants us to experience maximum pain and suffering. Not at all. God is not the author of pain and suffering, and yet he can use it. Pain and suffering is one of the tools in God's toolbox to shape and to grow our faith, to make us more like Jesus, a tool that he's not afraid to use to grow us and to increase our dependence on him and for him to accomplish his purposes in the world through us. Reminded here of Paul's words elsewhere, Romans 5, verses 3 to 5, words that he actually wrote not long before this very speech that he's giving in Acts 20. We actually see early on in Acts 20, he's in Corinth for three months. It's believed that's when he wrote the book of Romans. So just a little while before this speech, here's what he wrote in Romans 5, verses 3 to 5. He says, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And de uh, endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. Or in other words, suffering and pain is how we grow and become people of hope. You can't really become a person of hope without experiencing pain in your life. Verse 5, and this hope will not lead us to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us. Because he has given us the Holy Spirit, as we're remembering today on the day of Pentecost, to fill our hearts with his love. You know, many people today, they actually question God's love for them when they go through something painful or difficult in life. We say, why God? Why did you allow this really terrible thing to happen in my life? Why have you allowed me to go through this suffering, pain, loss, grief, whatever it is? But what if suffering and pain 
is actually nothing more than an opportunity for us to increase our dependence on the Holy Spirit and the love of God in our lives. And what if suffering and pain might be something that God even leads us into from time to time so that we can become more dependent on him? There's a crazy thought. Again, not that he's the author of pain and suffering. He's not. But it is a tool in his toolbox that he likes to use to grow us. Some of you, I, I know your story. Some of you know this all too well. It is in times of suffering and pain in your story when you have grown the most spiritually, isn't it? When you go through a loss of some kind. When life disappoints you. When you're struggling in some way. That's when God meets you the most. You'd never want to go through that time again. It was probably the worst time or one of the worst times of your life. But man, when you look back on it, you wouldn't be who you are today if it weren't for that experience. You know, we have an opportunity when we enter into suffering and pain in our life. We can either get better or we can get bitter. We've heard that before, right? Get better or get bitter. We can either become more dependent on the Spirit of God in us and His love in us, becoming softened towards the Spirit, or we can become bitter and hard and resentful. You rarely stay the same. You don't stay the same. You get better or you get bitter. The Spirit of God wants to make you better. And it's the tool, a tool in his toolbox, suffering and pain, to grow us. Paul knew that. He knew what lied ahead of him in Jerusalem, suffering and pain. But look at his perspective on it, crazy perspective. Look at what he says, verse 24. But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. That's craziness. He's saying, you know, suffering, pain, jail, even maybe death. It doesn't matter, Paul says. What matters most is that I remain faithful to God's call on my life to tell others about the wonderful grace of God. If God wants to throw me in jail for that to happen more, if he wants me to die in order for that to happen more, then so be it. My life is worth nothing if not for that. What a crazy perspective to have on suffering and pain. Like God's going to use me through that to accomplish his purposes, and that's fine with me, whatever that means. Verse 25. And now I know that none of you to whom I preach the kingdom will ever see me again. I'm gone after this. I'm going to Jerusalem. I might die. So I declare today that I have been faithful Again, he's saying, my, look at my example, right? I've been true to God's call in my life. If anyone suffers eternal death, it's not my fault. If anyone rejects Christ, it's not because I didn't tell them about Christ. It's because they're choosing to, to re reject him on their own. I, for I didn't shrink back, he says, for declaring all that God wants you to know. I, I did all that God called me to do. What happens next is on you. That's what Paul is saying as he looks ahead to a very difficult future. Suffering, pain, jail, torture, maybe even death in Jerusalem. It's the second section of Paul's farewell speech. The third and final section is where he gets into the, the present. The present moment that he finds himself in with these leaders in Ephesus. And in this section, what we'll see is Paul has some... Pretty strong words, I would say, for these leaders as he warns and exhorts them in some pretty specific ways. 
Look what he says, starting in verse 28. It sort of summarizes his entire part of this speech right here. So guard yourselves and God's people. That's how he starts this section about the future. So guard yourselves and God's people. Now notice the order here. Remember, he's speaking to leaders of the church, right? He says, first, guard yourselves and God's people. You know, I'm reminded here of, uh, you know, when you're, you're on an airplane, they say, you know, the oxygen mask comes down to put it on yourself first before trying to help someone else. Because if you can't breathe, you can't help others breathe. It's kind of what Paul's saying here, isn't it? Guard yourself first, spiritually. Make sure you don't fall prey to any of the devil's tactics in your life. Make sure you don't fall away from the faith. Guard yourself first and foremost. And then God's people. Because as you guard yourself, as you take care of yourself, as you are growing in Christ, then you might have something to offer God's people. But if you're not growing in Christ, you really aren't going to have all that much to offer God's people. So he's saying to these leaders in the church, guard yourselves first, and then God's people. Now what specifically does it look like then to guard yourself and God's people? Well, Paul tells us, starting with the latter, starting with guarding God's people. Remember, he's speaking to leaders in the church, to elders in the church. Here's what he says in verse 28. Feed and shepherd God's flock. His church, not yours, leaders, elders, church doesn't belong to you. It's his church purchased with his own blood, over which you are fortunate enough to have had the Holy Spirit appoint you as a leader. Feed and shepherd God's flock. That's in part what it is to guard God's people. Or in other words, it's to teach God's flock from God's word, to teach the scriptures, and to tend and care and care to the flock. Especially when the flock is hurting. It reminds me here of Jesus in Luke 15, where he tells the parable of the lost sheep, right? One sheep wanders off. Go. And rescue that sheep. Bring it back to the sheepfold. Care for the flock in such a way as that. As Jesus called us to. Teach and guard God's flock. Teach and tend to God's flock. Remembering again first and foremost. That the church belongs to God. And he paid for the church. With his own blood. It's his. It's not yours. And then it looks like this as well. Verse 29. It looked like just uh, um, feeding and shepherding God's flock, but it looks like this, verse 29. I know that false teachers, like vicious wolves, will come in among you after I have, Paul says, not sparing the flock. Even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following and to kind of appear important and successful in life and ministry. Paul says, don't just feed and guard or, or, or tend to God's flock, but protect them as well from false teachers. Watch out for people, for false teachers, for wolves, Paul calls them, who distort God's truth and make it all about themselves instead, abusing even God's people for the sake of advancing their own causes, for the sake of their own ego, for the sake of their own sense of success and purpose and meaning in life. Watch out for those kinds of wolves, Paul says. Protect the flock from these kinds of leaders. People who distort the truth and make it all about themselves. You know, I don't want to name names <laughs> this morning, but if you've been around the church 
for any given time, attended different churches, you probably know of some wolves, false teachers. People are driven by ego. Maybe even they are literal predators like wolves. Guard God's people from these kinds of people, Paul is saying, because they're out there. They're out there. It's what the church leaders, the elders in Ephesus are called to do. Feed, shepherd, and protect God's people. Direct people spiritually and protect them spiritually. Which, interestingly, is exactly what our elder board at the gathering here exists to do. Direct and protect. That's the language that we use. Direct and protect. For those of you who don't know, we actually have five elders, six if you include myself. I don't have a vote. I'm ex officio. But uh, on, my, on the board is an elder as well. We've got Colin Miller, who's the chair of our board, and Michael Kirkwood, who's suffering for Jesus in France right now. Rebecca Bussey, who I don't see this morning. Modi, who's not here as well. Craig Cudmore, who's making sure you can hear me and that, that his phone doesn't fall on the ground. Uh, as well, I make sure it's taped up there real good for those who want to listen or watch online. These are our board of elders. And their job, as I've said, is to direct and protect our church. We talk about this all the time, to provide spiritual direction to our church and to me as I lead the church as pastor, as well as to protect the church, to protect the church theologically. Like if I start saying really wonky things, up here. They're going to call me on it. If there's weird ideas that start floating around our congregation, we're going to talk about how to address those things. Protect our church theologically, spiritually, by praying for us, relationally, by when there's conflict or issues that need to be dealt with, they're helping us deal with it. Financially, by making sure we're doing okay financially, organizationally, policy-wise, all that kind of stuff leads us to direct and protect our church. And I just say all that to say um, to invite you, to invite us, the congregation, to commit to praying for these leaders, to commit to praying for the elders, because it's an in intense job. There's a lot of expectation attached to it, and we need the congregation to be praying, praying for the leaders of this church, not just myself and, and Rachel and Kristen on staff, Dan planting a church down in Bytown, but uh, for our elders as well. Please pray for our elder team. Did I miss Jay? Jay's on our elder board, too. Maybe that was, like, subconscious. I blocked that out. I was like, maybe Jay shouldn't be. I don't know. <laughs> I bug. You could pray about the relational protecting that needs to happen. No. Yeah. Anyway, back to Paul's speech. Paul concludes this particular challenge to guard God's people with these words. This is the end of his speech. He says, watch out. Again, he's exhorting them. Watch out. Remember the three years I was with you. Again, he goes back to his example. My constant watch and care over you night and day and my many tears for you. Or in other words, Paul is saying, if you're not sure what it actually looks like to guard God's people, follow my lead, he's saying to these elders. If you're not sure if someone might be a false teacher, look to my example. Look to what it was that I taught you for us today since we don't have the Apostle Paul or the Apostles still here amongst us, we look to scripture and the teaching laid out for us in God's word. But this is how we follow their example. We follow their teaching. We follow the teaching of Jesus to make sure that everything lines up with what scripture says. So what it is to guard God's people. Remember, he led with guarding yourself, right? So what does it mean to guard yourself, whether you're a church leader or not? Verse 32. This is so important. 
He says, and now I entrust you to God and the message of his grace that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with all those he has set apart for himself. Before Paul says anything about guarding yourself, first and foremost, he says, I entrust you to the gospel of God's grace. Because if, if you don't know the gospel, if you aren't rooted in the gospel and what Jesus has done for you, you have no hope of guarding yourself spiritually. The only way you can really guard yourself spiritually is by staying rooted in the gospel of Jesus and what it is that he's done for you in the cross and the empty tomb, that he paid the highest price for you so that you could be set free from your sin, the evil things in this world, and live a different life empowered by the Holy Spirit. You know, this past week, um, maybe it was last week, Tim Keller, how many know who Tim Keller is? Pastor, teacher, author, he passed away. Pancreatic cancer, 72 years old. He summarizes the gospel like this. Let me just tell you how he says it. He says that, um, you are more wicked. This is, this is uh, really good news. You are more wicked and evil than you could ever dare imagine, but more loved in Jesus Christ than you could ever dare to hope. That's the good news of Jesus. There is more sin and evil and death in us than we could ever even imagine or know, understand, um, and yet still so loved in Christ Jesus. So much that he came to this world to die for us so that we could be reconciled to God. Stay rooted, Paul is saying, in that truth. In the, in the gospel of God's grace. Don't make it about your own works, your own actions. Stay rooted in the, the gospel of God's grace. And as you do that then, Paul says, watch out for these three things. And it's interesting, the three things that he mentions here. As you stay rooted in the gospel of God's grace, I want you to watch out for three things. Look at what he says. Verse 33 says, I have never coveted anyone's silver or gold or fine clothes. I've never coveted. He goes right into coveted. It's the first thing Paul says to watch out for. Kind of surprising, isn't it? Covetousness. Or what we might call just simply envy or jealousy or comparison. Paul says, pointing to himself as an example, once again, I've never coveted anyone's silver or gold or fine clothes, their money or possessions, but I've been grateful and content with what God has given to me. Envy, coveting, is something that we've got to guard ourselves against as we rest in the gospel of God's grace. Now, what is envy? I don't know if you've given much thought to envy before. It's not really a topic that we think we talk a whole lot about. But recently, actually, before coming into the sermon, it was something I felt like God was speaking to me about. And he was speaking to me about it through a definition of envy that I want to share with you from a guy named Craig Rochelle. Listen to this. He says, envy, I, I find this so powerful. He says, envy is when you resent God's goodness in other people's lives and ignore God's goodness in your own. Whoa. Envy is when you resent God's goodness in other people's lives. Oh, th their spouse treats them way better than they treat me. My spouse treats me. Oh, they have this, then I don't have. You go down the line, right? It's comparison. Resenting God's goodness in other people's lives and ignoring God's goodness in your own. Can you see how dangerous envy can be in our lives? Can lead to all sorts of issues. Bitterness, resentment, ingratitude judgmentalism, greed, and hoarding. 
It's underneath a lot of the world's worst sins, as you think about it. Paul says, as you stay rooted in the gospel of God's grace, as you revel in God's goodness to you in Christ Jesus, you're set free from envy because you're not looking at other people's lives saying, I wish I had that, but you're looking at your own life and saying, isn't God so good to me? Even though I don't have what they have, even though I'm not always where I want to be, isn't God so good to me? Look at what he's done for me in Christ Jesus. As you rest in the grace of God, you can't envy others. When you do, when you step out of the gospel, you're going to envy. You're going to walk in envy. Verse 34. It's not all he says. He talks about two more things. You know that these hands of mine have worked to supply my own needs and even the needs of those who were with me. And I've been a constant example, Paul says, of how you can help those in need by working hard. Now what's Paul challenging his listeners, his leaders, to guard themselves against here? two things. Entitlement and greed. Entitlement and greed. First he went after envy. Now he's talking about entitlement and greed. He says, don't think the world owes you anything, which is entitlement. Right? When you're when you're not rooted in the gospel of God's grace, you can become so full of yourself that you think the world owes you things. But because you're so educated, so smart, so privileged, so fill in the blank, I should have blank. It's entitlement. It says, don't think the world owes you anything, but work hard to supply for your own needs. Notice, he says, as you rest in God's grace, you're still to work hard. You can't work to achieve God's grace favor in your life, that's not possible, but in response to God's grace in your life, you're still to work hard to apply the benefits of it, displaying a good work ethic, serving with joy, going over and above. But don't just work hard, Paul says, for yourselves and your own families, which is greed. If it's just work ethic for yourself, that's greed. Work hard for the sake of others, as well, as what he says in verse 35, right? I have been a constant example of how you can help those in need by working hard. He didn't just work hard for himself. He worked hard for others. He's saying walk in generosity as you're rooted in the gospel of God's grace. Be generous with what God has given to you. Working hard to bless others and to meet the needs of others around you. Protect yourself, Paul says, from entitlement and greed. And then he ends his speech officially. I said he was ending before, but there was more. I forgot. He ends it officially with these words. He said, you should remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And I imagine you have a mic. It's kind of like a mic drop moment, right? Like, see you guys later. I'm off to Jerusalem. I think you'll figure it out from here. It's more blessed to give than to receive. This is one of the few sayings of Jesus not found in one of the four Gospels. It's in Scripture, but not found in one of the four Gospels. And a statement that some have said encapsulates all of Jesus' teaching on money and giving and generosity. It's more blessed to give than to receive. That as we give generously of our time and our talents and our treasures, we experience the gospel. Why? Because you are never more like God than when you give. You're never more like God than when you give. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he 
gave his one and only son. You are never more like God than when you give and live generously in response to what God has done for you in Christ. Not to earn it, not thinking that by writing this check or volunteering my time or doing this kind thing, I'm going to somehow earn God's blessing and favor in my life. But in response to a knowledge of God's grace in your own life, as you give generously, you are reflecting the gospel because giving is at the heart of the gospel. You're more blessed when you give than when you receive. Some of you know what that's like. When you give, you give anonymously to someone. When you help someone out, you know that sense of God's spirit, the joy that comes into your life when you give generously. You also know the, the pain and selfishness that can come into your life when you walk in self-centeredness and greed, when you hoard. It's not good for your soul. It's not the gospel. You never more like God than when you give. Paul ends his speech sermon to these leaders with this church. Quoting Jesus, challenging them to protect themselves from greed and entitlement by living generously instead. And then, just quickly, the section ends, verse thirty-six. When they had finished, uh, when he had finished speaking, he knelt and prayed with them, and they all cried as they embraced and kissed him goodbye. They were so sad, most of all, because he had said that they would never see him again. They escorted him down to the ship. I don't know why when I read this, but I have that image of Frodo leaving the, the council or whatever it is, they're all crying, sad, like, oh, don't go. Like, that's kind of like what's happening here. As Paul leaves. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Paul's Frodo is what I'm saying <laughs> in this passage. This is Paul's farewell speech to the leaders of the church in Ephesus as he spoke about the past, right, and his example to them, the future and the suffering that awaited him in Jerusalem and the present as he warned these leaders to guard themselves and God's people. So it's already after 12. So we started a little late here, trying to duct tape a phone to a stand. Um, but what do we do with this speech? I want to leave you with just a few reflection questions. We could focus on past, future, present, but I actually want to hone in on those three things that the Apostle Paul challenged these leaders in Ephesus to guard themselves against, right? Envy, entitlement, and greed. If we had more time, I was going to have you spend some time discussing these questions, but I'll just put them on the screen for you. Maybe you can take a picture of them, consider them on your own, reflect on them further. First question is this. What makes envy so toxic in the follower, follower of Jesus' life? And what is a potential antidote to envy in our lives today? It's an important question. Think about envy. Remember that definition of envy, right? Envy is resenting God's goodness in other people's lives while ignoring God's goodness in our own. What's, what's so dangerous about that? What can that do to our soul? And what do we do in response? What's the antidote to that? I'll give you a hint. I think gratitude has something to do with it. Question two, how can entitlement show up in our lives today? How does the gospel confront entitlement? Entitlement look like in our lives? How does the gospel confront entitlement? Well, remember that definition of the gospel that Tim Keller gives us, right? That we are more wicked and evil than we could ever dare imagine. We don't, God doesn't owe us anything. <laughs> um, but more loved in Christ Jesus than we could ever dare hope. How does the gospel confront entitlement? And thirdly, how can we guard ourselves against greed? How does the gospel of Jesus make us generous people? And how can greed lead us to forget the gospel? 
So we live into self-centeredness and greed and hoarding and all that kind of stuff. What's that do to our soul and our mind and uh, our spirits? A few questions for us to consider. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's words uh, to this church, these leaders in Ephesus, the power of them. So we see what uh, really um, mattered most to Paul as he invested in these leaders. We pray that you take this speech, take your word, and um, use it in our lives. If there's anything from this text, from the sermon, from the service this week that was for uh, one of us here today, God, would you remind us by your spirit of these words throughout the week? Show us how to live in to what it is that you're showing us about, what you're revealing to us. Speak to us, we pray. Teach us about envy and about entitlement and greed. And show us how we can live free from that as we understand the gospel in a deeper way. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for tuning in. We're back next week with more of our Acts of the Apostles series. Don't forget to check out our website, thegatheringottawa.com, and tune in next week to The Gathering Ottawa's Message Podcast.